0: KYW Original Podcasts.
1: This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. As we continue to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic, we hear more and more about the concept of herd immunity. What is herd immunity? How does it work? And, And what has happened to other places that have tried to use herd immunity as a strategy without having a vaccine? For answers, we reached out to Dr. Jason Diaz, Assistant Professor in the Integrated Science, Business and Technology Program at LaSalle University, and we talk all things herd immunity. Give a listen. So to start, what is herd immunity? Define for us the concept.
0: Sure thing. So herd immunity refers to this uh, phenomenon that happens when enough individuals in a given population are immune to a given pathogen. Uh, And so, of course, the word herd comes from the image of like a herd of cows or herd of, uh, of other types of animals. And uh, the the idea is whenever a new pathogen enters a population, everyone is naive, meaning they have not seen it before. Everyone is susceptible. It rips through the population uh, very quickly. But as people become immune, they're no longer able to be infected, right? And so if enough people in that population are immune, either because they've been sick or because they've gotten vaccinated those create roadblocks so that pathogens are no longer able to spread throughout the community. And usually when we talk about herd immunity, we're really interested in what is the so-called threshold, how many people or what proportion of the population needs to be immune so that the pathogen is no longer able to spread effectively. And that threshold is going to uh, be different uh, depending on what pathogen you're talking about a lot of other variables. But again, herd immunity is just this idea that if we get enough people immune in a given population, it will make it very difficult for a pathogen to spread. Before we talk
1: about COVID-19, you mentioned that threshold. Give it, can you give us some context kind of off the cuff here of what some common viruses and what the
0: threshold is for them? Sure, exactly. So I think one of the really uh, well-studied examples is measles, right? And so we have a measles vaccine that is given to most infants, and that's because measles is highly contagious. We know that an average infection of measles, that infected child usually, will likely infect up to 12 to 16 other people before that child fully recovers from measles. And that is extremely infectious. And so when you have a virus that's that contagious, we know that we need to have an immunity rate of maybe 95 to 97% of the population to really prevent that disease from spreading. Again, that's because of just how contagious that is. Now, contrast that with influenza, right? Influenza, on average, when you're sick, you'll probably infect between one to two other people before you fully recover and are no longer infectious. So that's much smaller than the uh, fifteen, to almost 15 people for measles. And so the amount of immunity you need in a population for influenza is much lower. Like we're talking as low as maybe 50 to 70%, right? Now, that, of course, ties into it the idea of vaccines, right? And, and one of the complications with vaccines is not every vaccine is going to be 100% effective. In fact, most vaccines are not 100% effective. So one thing I just want to make clear is there's a difference between the threshold for herd immunity and the threshold for vaccination. So since we know the flu vaccines are usually... Uh, nowhere near 95% effective, we actually need to vaccinate more people to kind of make up for the difference there. So even though we might only need maybe 50 to 70% immune people for influenza, when it comes to vaccination, we actually need the vaccination rate to be much higher, closer to 80 to 90%. But we don't usually quite get there in, in the United States, but uh, every little bit counts and helps um, and uh, that kind of gives you, I think, some idea of the range of immunity thresholds we might need and how vaccines add a complication to that that calculation a little bit. So
1: that being said, and obviously we're dealing with a novel coronavirus, so we're learning all the time. But is there a feeling of what we would have to hit a, a, a threshold for COVID-19 where we could kind of point to uh, herd immunity?
0: Sure thing. And as you just said, you know, this is a novel virus a novel pathogen and we're not really going to know for sure for for a few years yet, but thinking about how we know the number the threshold is somewhat related to how infectious a disease is how easily it spreads uh, and things like that I think at this point most of the uh, experts in epidemiology are agreeing that it's going to be somewhere around sixty to seventy percent which actually if even in the examples I just gave sixty seven percent is between the fifty percent for influenza and the 95% for measles. And we know that uh, generally people with coronavirus can, on average, infect much more than two people, but much fewer than 15. So that actually is kind of like within that ballpark. So that, that seems that seems intuitively anyway, like a reasonable estimate to me, although I am not an epidemiologist, but I do obviously want to kind of see what they, what they have to say. That being said, there are, of course... Other scientists who have uh, different models and come up with different estimations, I think the other number that i 've seen reported by quite a few folks is closer to forty percent, which is much lower and would imply a much different timeline for when we might start you know opening things up and things like that and so figuring out what that number is is a very uh, central point of debate um, in the policy uh, field because uh, it really affects when we can start opening up, which then affects uh, the economy and healthcare and things like that. And uh, and so that this is where I think a lot of the discussion around herd immunity is right now. It's like, what is the actual number that we need and how do we get there? And is that something we
1: won't know until we know? And how do you, you know, you, you hit a point, is it just all of a sudden the numbers fall off a cliff and we start to kind of reverse engineer that, okay, we, we've hit a threshold?
0: Good question. In some ways it is, and I think one of the things that's been very difficult with this pandemic is um, it's really forced uh, a lot of us to confront the uncertainty that's inherent in science, especially when it comes to biology, uh, and that really we're talking about lots of different gray areas and not really hard cutoffs, right? And so for example, let's say we decide 40% is the cutoff, but actually 70% uh, is the quote unquote true one. What will probably happen is that we will still see a surge of infections, but it will be much lower than what we have seen currently. And uh, it will still cause issues until we get to that 70% issue. And so what would probably happen is, has the opening of 40%, see, oh crap, this isn't really working and have to kind of come back and reinstate some of those restrictions. Whereas if we had wait until 70% and start opening up, what we may see then is that actually it takes a long time before we see surges and maybe those surges never really hit higher. So we're really not going to know until we actually, exactly what you said, kind of see what happens. Um, and so there's a lot of concern about getting it right, so to speak, and kind of weighing the cost benefit of, well, is it worth it to open now with it maybe not being quite right? And maybe we can shoulder the consequences versus Let's just wait until we know we're 100 percent, you know, going to be okay, and then open up. I think that is really kind of the essence of the debate around how best to achieve herd immunity right now.
1: Is it possible to have pockets that have reached the threshold within the greater country that has not like if an area was hammered early on and then all of a sudden we see numbers drop? Is that a possibility?
0: Yes. And actually, um, it's exactly those types of pockets that are going to give us the best, uh, you know, kind of clues as to what levels we need. Right. So, for example, we know, of course, New York City was hit the hardest and um, very quickly within, I want to say, a couple months just from antigen tests or I'm sorry, antibody testing. So testing for an immune response that you make to the virus, you know, I think they reported as early as April that maybe 20% of the population uh, had been exposed, right? Uh, Now, keep in mind that today we think that nationally if we average the whole country we're only at 10%. So that's already quite a big difference just in that one small population. The problem is that when we think about these smaller communities, again, our populations are not static. People are traveling, right? And as we approach the holidays, people are still going to be very much, I think, enticed to want to travel to visit family. And so that that New York City example of of that immunity is going to fluctuate as people move in and out of the city. Uh, and the only real way to, I think, you know, protect those small populations is to keep them isolated, which is going to be very difficult. Another kind of, I would say, unfortunate um, experiments on this. Uh, I shouldn't even say experiment because it wasn't designed as an experiment, but an unfortunate outcome has been looking at prison populations, right? Prisons, you know, we're we're talking about incarcerated people who are unable to move. They're really completely confined in that one location. Coronavirus has definitely spread to a very high degree in those populations. And if we look at how many people needed to be infected before the, the, the infections really stopped, That's where we're starting to see examples of like, it really needs to be about 60 to 70% of the prison inmates uh, need to uh, build immunity before those local epidemics kind of died down. And so those small communities are really useful for understanding the levels that we might need, uh, but they're not necessarily good examples of like what we would want to do on a national scale necessarily, right?
1: So I think uh in the midst of this pandemic we've all become armchair epidemiologists and we've all read and <laughs> right. we all think we know a lot more than we do. But the first time I heard the concept of herd immunity was when I think it was Sweden. Right. I don't know if they announced it or was right. determined that, that would they were going to take the road of let's let it wash over us. We'll be done with it mm-hmm. quicker and we'll we'll get on with our lives. Am I Portraying it
0: fairly, and if I am, what have we learned Sure, thank you for for asking that question so I think right now there 's a lot of discussion about herd immunity, but there 's also a little bit of i don 't want to say confusion, but when people talk about herd immunity right now they 're talking about a strategy exactly as you described that Sweden and some other folks have been proposing of allowing herd immunity to uh, happen naturally. I just want to be very clear before I talk more about Sweden that vaccination works entirely through a a herd immunity model, right? The reason why there is no longer polio in this country is because we were able to establish enough herd immunity through the polio vaccines to stop those chains of infections. And now we don't even need to give the vaccine largely to us uh, citizens, because there's no way for it to reenter because there's just like, we're really good at screening it and preventing it from spreading at this point. Uh, so I want to be very clear. When I, when I talk about herd immunity, I'm talking about, you know, the strategy that in general vaccines, that's how we're going to get to her immunity safely. That being said, Sweden proposed a different model because, it is going to take time to get a vaccine and there's a lot of economic and other challenges and um, and losses that are associated with lockdowns and these other measures. So as you uh, kind of hinted at, Sweden's approach from the very beginning was not to inst- uh, institute any lockdown measures at all, but instead to kind of allow the younger um, generation who we think are going to be less likely to have serious disease to kind of go about their day normally Uh, get exposed to and infected, quote-unquote naturally and because they're younger and less likely to have serious disease they're generally going to be okay while at the same time recognizing that there are some vulnerable populations especially the elderly and those with respiratory issues and circulatory issues who need to be protected and so that was Sweden's strategy and that's been a strategy that's kind of been um, being resurrected in the conversation currently and uh the, the pro There are a couple problems with that strategy, so if you look at Sweden just as an example, despite their effort to uh, protect those who are more vulnerable, the death rate in Sweden is twice that in the u s so if you think about you know how many deaths we've endured with our strategy here. Um, They've had at least twice hours and much, if you compare Sweden to other um, Scandinavian countries, even higher compared to like Norway, for example. So the the cost, I guess, the country from a death toll perspective is not insignificant. Additionally, Sweden still had pretty significant uh, economic hits, um, which is because, you know, when people get sick and die, there are very serious ramifications, not just emotionally, of course, but also economically um, and, and societally. And uh, if we look at the Sweden literally today at their infection rates, they are experiencing a second wave. So despite their efforts to kind of generate that herd immunity that they thought they needed, having experienced that you know higher death rate uh, and that economic downturn, they were not able to achieve herd immunity in that time. And we know that because they have a second wave of infections today. And you can look at the tracker. It's been going up for the whole month of October uh, for Sweden. So, So their strategy, you know, is uh, I don't think that there really is evidence to me that their strategy is any more effective than the ones that we've been using, and in my opinion, I think the costs um, far outweigh any potential benefit. Uh, and this is why we have vaccines. Vaccines is a way, are, are is a strategy for achieving herd immunity that does not come, you know, carry with it that death toll uh, and that you know the, those serious outcomes that people who get infected have. And the last thing I just want to say about the the Sweden kind of uh, model is that um, this assumption that young people don't get serious disease is also something that should be really, you know, kind of uh, viewed with some skepticism and some critical thinking, because Uh, While it's true that the death rates are much lower, uh, we definitely see many reports of young people having very prolonged COVID infections where yes, they don't die, but they actually end up hospitalized for longer. And we know that COVID is causing both lung and heart damage. And it's hard to know exactly what the long-term effects of this damage is. We're starting to see in some cases some recovery, but in other cases it 's really hard to know what the long term effects are of these, uh, you know, of these um, outcomes uh, for these disease, even if you don 't end up dying from from covid right so I, I think for the, for many of these reasons, um, the vast majority of public health um, professionals and epidemiologists have really kind of gone against and actually called this this model very, very unethical model of, of just letting people get infected because Uh, We don't actually know all the risks, the long-term risks that this is going to have. And we know that there are effective strategies for preventing infection um, that we can put into place now.
1: There has been discussion of this being a strategy in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And just not to put too fine a point on it, but we've lost more than 200,000 people doing various levels of lockdowns. And, you know, we can argue some places more effective than others, but we've We've tried to take it head-on for the most part, and we've lost 200,000 people. And we're at 10% of the population. So you just do the math. You're talking about a a frightening amount of people that would mm-hmm. be killed, let alone the people you talk about who long-term hospitalization right. and long-term health issues. I, I can't even get my head around how – someone could think this would be a good idea other than only looking at it on, on paper.
0: Yeah. So, you know, the, the Berington declaration, which is, you know, this report that came out recently that the white house has kind of supported that's, you know, making this argument for the Swedish model, I'll call it. A lot of the critique for that, for that argument for allowing natural infection to achieve herd immunity uh, centers around some of the things that you just brought up. Right. So we know that if we keep our current, current methods, right? I think the CDC has calculated that if we can keep our current kind of status quo of, of, of regulations around social distancing, et cetera. We will likely eclipse 400,000 deaths, you know, sometime next year, maybe mid next year or even first quarter, right? And that's just doing what we're doing now. And it's absolutely, you know, going to be the case that we lift restrictions, that we're going to very rapidly go over 400, maybe even 500,000 total deaths from this. And that's only within like maybe a year and a half of dealing with this pandemic. And so we know that the death toll is going to be very high. Also, just from a just percentage standpoint, like I said, we think that right now on average, about 10% of the country um, might be uh, immune to, to COVID due to just exposure. We think that maybe by first quarter, first third of next year, that might go up to 20%. It's going to take a long time, even if we lift restrictions, to get as high as that 60 to 70% that we need. And that's going to come with the, all of the kind of like you know, deaths and, and things that you've been talking about. And so, if you look at the actual like report, like the Barrington Declaration, they don't actually go into any of the details to talk about these consequences of this type of policy. In addition, they don't really talk about like what, how do we actually do this policy? So, for example, you know, I'm a professor at a university. My students would be the type of students, would be the type of young people who this type of strategy would say, just go out and do your thing, right? But at this university, there are many faculty, right, who are high risk. So are we then saying that those faculty are going to definitely have to stay home and teach remotely? So are we just going to ask ask students to come to campus to take classes remotely because we're trying to protect our faculty, right? And that also, again, doesn't take into account that You know, it's very hard for some people to separate young people from quote unquote older people. Right. And so think about all the families who have multi generations, you know, inside the household um, or who need to take care of other uh, family members who are, um, you know, who are high risk. The implementation of this is is not simple and has a lot of extra costs and burdens on people that have not really been, you know, kind of discussed or really, um, really kind of fleshed out. Uh, in this plan. So I think that there's both a lot of there's a lot of problems with this idea, both from an epidemiology standpoint, but also just from a policy standpoint. There's a lot of holes and kind of hidden costs that are not being talked about.
1: In wrapping up here, I just uh, as kind of a connection to this. You know, we've had millions of people infected. Yeah. And uh, every once in a while, you hear one of these breaking news stories that somebody got infected a second time and it sure. kind of sets off. Social media into the world is ending we 're never going to end this, and i don 't mean to make light of it, but is this unusual for coronaviruses for people to get a certain low number of people to get a secondary infection, and what does that tell us about immunity
0: very good question yeah th- this is this is something that everyone is concerned about and keeping a close eye on so so I guess there 's a couple things i 'll say first, when it comes just to immunology in general um, there are there are going to be cases that are very rare of people being infected twice by the same virus, right? So even for chickenpox, which we usually kind of think of as a virus that produces a very strong immune response such that it never comes back and that we don't get infected again, there have been rare cases of people being infected with chickenpox twice, right? And so I think that's always possible. And when we're talking about the number of people that we're talking about, which is really the globe, right? Something that is extremely rare, like we're talking point zero 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 one percent chance you're going to see it happen because there're just you know there are billions of people on this planet that you know that you're going to see it happen at a very to a very small extent right. That being said, let's talk about coronaviruses. So there are actually naturally occurring coronaviruses that infect us all the time. About 20% of the common cold are caused by coronaviruses. And we know that we generally don't make good immunity to cold viruses because we get colds all the time, right? And so for those non-pandemic coronaviruses that don't cause serious disease, we think that the immunity for those viruses maybe only lasts for a couple of years, right? Now, that I don't know how much we can translate that to the pandemic coronavirus that we're dealing with. Uh, because it's a novel virus, um, we may be producing a stronger immune response, which means it may last longer. Um, or maybe it's going to be shorter. It's hard It's hard to know. I would say the number of people, that are reports that I've seen, of credible reports like I've seen of reinfection for, uh, for COVID has been extremely small compared to the number of people that have been infected, right? So we're talking like millions of people in the U.S. have been infected, and maybe, I think, maybe four or five uh, cases at this point are, are ones I believe, um, and not even all of them are in the U.S. And so, and those that are reinfected, you look at their disease it's much milder they are not nearly as um as symptomatic they don't have any serious like things going on and they likely are also less infectious so even in the cases where we do see reinfection the immune response they made to the first infection is still doing something it's still making that second infection much milder and therefore making that person more likely to survive and also less likely to spread it um, to, to other people so that being said, I would not necessarily be worried that we're going to be dealing with this forever um, because I think it's going to be very rare for people to be infected a second time in such a short period of time. And so I think that once we reach herd immunity, it's going to really break the chain and it's going to may, uh, you know, make coronavirus be like maybe a pocket epidemic that happens every now and then you know, over the next couple of years, just like colds happen. Uh, that being said, what does this mean about immunity with vaccines? I think that's an open question. I don't think anyone really has a good idea about really what's going to happen as far as how long the immune response is going to persist and how good of immune response we really need to get that herd immunity. Uh, But that doesn't mean that we just kind of like give up on vaccines. It just means that we need to be very critical and be very vigilant of uh, kind of how things are going as we deploy these vaccines, you know. Are we seeing things crop up or uh, do we see resurgence in the epidemic and the pandemic after people are getting vaccinated? Are, are we tying that to a particular vaccine that might be not as good as others? So we can identify better vaccine candidates to really deploy more broadly. Right. So it's going to, you know, it's, we're not going to be out of the woods just when vaccines are deployed. There's still going to be a period of time where we're going to have to do a lot of surveillance to kind of understand, you know, how effective are we generating immune responses to achieve that herd immunity. But that being said, going back to this idea of just letting things happen naturally, it is much easier in a vaccine to instigate a very strong immune response that you wouldn't normally get with a natural infection. Because we know a lot more about immun- immunology now that we can design these vaccines to really kind of have a supercharged effect in your body without causing serious you know, harm to you. Uh, and so I'm actually optimistic that the vaccines that we're making are gonna be at least as good, if not better in many cases, as um, a natural infection would be. So I'm pretty optimistic that uh, whatever we learn from these reinfections, I think should be a cautionary tale, but one that kind of gives us, I guess, the bar of what we need to jump over with our our vaccine strategy. And I'm optimistic that we'll get there, Uh, but it's gonna take time and it's gonna take patience. That's it
1: for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.